0: This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. The ruminant.ca is a website dedicated to sharing good ideas for farmers and gardeners. Most of the content on the site involves me posting other people's photos of their innovative farming tools, techniques, and ideas. I'd love to have a contribution from you, so please take some photos of what you're doing and send them to me at editortheruminant.ca. At okay, let's do a podcast. Hey folks, this is Jordan, and this is a rerun of episode 13, which is another one from the archive that never made it on to this newer podcast feed, which means if you are a subscriber in the last couple of years, you haven't heard it. So I hope you enjoy it. And before we get started, I have some great news. I have booked two interviews for the next week or two, which means that we might be back into, no, we are back into new content starting next week. And I'm kind of over the hump on the farm in terms of the demands of the farm. There's still a lot of work to do, but there's there's less than there has been. So I think we're going to be back into regularly scheduled weekly episodes with all new content. So I'm really excited about that. The other thing that I hope to do next week is to talk a little bit about the Berta Rotary Plow, which is a common attachment for the, a BCS or Grillo uh, walk-behind tractor. I have a... At least temporary collaborator Scott Humphreys. He is a listener, and he's been on the show once before. And he's he might end up doing a little bit of help for me on the podcast. And uh, one thing he suggested is that I ask uh, some questions of listeners who might want to participate in a conversation about different aspects of farming. So he really wants to know how people uh, get their spacing right with their bed prep when they're using their brooder rotary plow. So I thought that was a great idea, and I think we could have a talk about the use of rotary plows in general because I own one and Scott owns one, and I'm sure some of you own them. So if you would like to participate in a discussion, I would love to get a recording from you. I could phone you in the next week, and maybe we could put something together. Editor at the ruminant.ca, if you just want to email me about that, you can get me on Twitter at ruminantblog. Or you can text me or phone me, 250-767-6636. So I hope to hear from one or two of you. Even if I don't, I think Scott and I will record a conversation about our rotary plows. And hopefully that will be useful to people. So we'll probably tack that on to next week's episode as well. I hope you like this episode on biochar. And uh, I think you're going to like next week's interview, assuming that interview happens as scheduled. It's with a journalist who wrote a really provocative piece on... Well, on the philosophies we hold about food security and the camps we belong to in terms of how we think farming should be done and why there are aspects of belonging to a camp like organic versus conventional or non-GMO or local and uh, how these camps uh, tend to limit us from making progress on food security. So I think that's gonna be really interesting and that'll be next week, released probably on Wednesday. Until then, here is a conversation with Jessica Dennis about biochar. This episode features my interview with Jessica Dennis, AKA Dennis, who graciously got on the phone with me to have a conversation about biochar. Dennis is a graduate student at the University of British Columbia who previously did some research on biochar. And in this conversation, we talk about biochar's potential role as a soil amendment and maybe even a climate mitigation strategy. And if you don't know what the hell I'm talking about, well, just listen to Dennis. Here we go. Jessica Dennis, thanks a lot for coming on the Ruminant Podcast.
1: You're welcome. I'm happy to be here.
0: So, Dennis, we met uh, at a Young Farmer conference recently, and I realized we had met before briefly at uh, an organic conference that took place last year at which you gave or you participated in a talk on biochar. And so I invited you to come on today and talk a little bit about biochar. But before we get on to that, um, could you just uh, introduce yourself? Tell us what you're doing right now. I know you're a grad student at the University of British Columbia. Could you tell you uh, tell us what you're working on currently?
1: Sure, um, so yes, I'm a master's student in the Faculty of Land and Food Systems at UBC. And my thesis research um, is on a very different topic from biochar and I'm, I'm working on a study around land access in BC for, for farmers, and um, my main focus is on different forms of land tenure, um, specifically alternatives to private ownership, and whether those alternative models that are popping up all over the place are working out for people, and if that seems like it's a, a viable way to move forward in terms of both preserving our agricultural land base in BC and creating viable um, Small-scale farms and accessible land for the the increased number of new farmers. It seems that we have in BC.
0: That sounds really cool. I'm a new farmer, and I think there's been an explosion of new farmers uh, lately. And I think that all of us could use more information on on good uh, on, on like alternate tenure arrangements. Uh, I have a pretty interesting and complicated lease arrangement with my landlords right now. That sounds really cool.
1: Yeah, I'll have to talk to you about that um, at another time.
0: <laughs> Maybe we'll have you on for another episode. But yeah. <laughs> today we're going to talk about biochar. Dennis, what is biochar?
1: So biochar is basically it's charcoal is the simple answer. But um, the, the definition of biochar would be charcoal that's been produced from any sort of biomass for use specifically as a soil amendment. So this word has kind of been coined within... I think around 2000 it was coined and and it does refer to,
0: to the production of charcoal for use in soils. But is that is is it different than say like like can I produce biochar in my wood stove here at home and go and, like like is it much different than throwing ashes from my wood stove into into the garden?
1: It is it is different in terms of the process by which it's made only because biochar is the, there's a climate change sustainability aspect of it, which I'm sure we'll get into, but a big component of it is to, to not produce greenhouse gases in the production, and so there are recommended ways of producing it, and so doing it in an open fire wouldn't be a, a recommended way, and plus you would have incomplete combustion, so it wouldn't be ideal.
0: Okay, so I guess we'll we'll get into the ideal way of producing it a little bit later, but just just so to, to so I make sure that I have it uh and that listeners understand mm-hmm. biochar is the product of of burning biomass like wood to produce a charcoal that you then amend your soil with to uh provide certain benefits to the soil and I'm assuming lar- um, largely related to kind of soil nutrients and organic matter and that sort of thing. Am I, am I have I more or less got that right? Correct. Yeah, you got that right. Okay, so how, maybe maybe we can go from here by. Uh, I'll ask you, how did you get involved with learning about biochar?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, like you, I didn't really know what biochar was a couple years ago. And um, Hannah Whitman, who is now my uh, thesis supervisor, had put together this proposal through the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions out of the University of Victoria to work with. Um, community farms in B.C. on something related to climate change. And she was familiar with the farmers at Fraser Common Farm, and one of the farmers there, Dave McCandless, had just been experimenting with biochar on, on his own out of, out of interest and um, wanting to be able to implement climate change mitigation strategies within their production system. And so Hannah asked Dave if they'd be interested in participating in some research related to that, and, and Dave was, was um, keen to, to have someone help him out and do some, some field trials with the biochar he was producing, and so I applied to do this research internship at Fraser Common Farm, and um, that's how I got involved with biochar.
0: So, so how does biochar relate to climate change mitigation?
1: Biochar is, charcoal is primarily carbon. And so when you, the process by which you make biochar, which is, it's called pyrolysis. And it's basically a a thermal, a conversion process in which the biomass is heated in the absence or, or near absence of oxygen at a fairly high temperature. The temperature ranges from about 350 to 850 Celsius. And that process results in, so the, the carbon in there becomes condensed. You, you end up with less mass in the end, so you have a greater carbon-to-mass ratio. So you have sort of a concentrated carbon product. And the the structure of the carbon in the biomass changes, and it becomes more recalcitrant, which, which just means that it's harder for the carbon to be broken down in the soil. So if you think about adding compost to our soils, um a large portion of that compost is is readily decomposed by microorganisms and the carbon is released to the atmosphere as carbon dioxide although there is a portion of the, the compost that is slower to break down and stays in the soil and that's the more recalcitrant part of the compost and with biochar because of the heating process the carbon the structure of the carbon that remains in there is very recalcitrant and so it's very resistant to decay in the soil and so when you add the biochar to our soils the carbon won't break down readily. And so the idea is that it will remain, the carbon will remain sequestered in the soil for quite a period of time. And so by that way, you're taking biomass, you're putting it in the soil, and it, the carbon is going to be going to stay in the soil for a, a way longer period of time than it would if you were just adding compost or, or crop residues back
0: to your soil. Okay, okay. So then I think that begs the question then, like, could we? Could, could you take me through how this might be applied on a large scale in our society as a climate change mitigation strategy? Like, is the idea that theoretically, Dennis, could you could could a, could a community or society decide to grow a whole bunch of trees with mm-hmm. the idea that the trees, over their lifespan, trap a lot of carbon, and then eventually those trees could be could be say sustainably harvested? Um, and uh, burned in in this certain way to produce biochar that then gets incorporated into our agricultural soils. And if done correctly, a lot of that carbon is going to get trapped in the soil while there are other benefits um, from the biochar being incorporated into the soil. Is that, a, is that, have I got that right?
1: You That is, you could do that. And that's actually been one of the the main critiques against biochar is that there's this potential that people are start going to growing tree plantations to make biochar, and that would be, it would take up land, and, and when, you know, it'd be sort of the the same argument against biofuels, basically. And I think that's a, a really important point, an important argument. And most people who are proponents of biochar, I'm not going to say all, but most people, myself included, and the people I've worked with. The idea isn't to grow something specifically to make biochar. I think that would take away any potential that biochar had to for climate change mitigation through tying up land and the, the resources that go into growing a crop or trees. Um, the idea is to use a waste stream. I think it's really important that if you're talking about climate change mitigation with biochar, I I think that it must come from a waste stream, or you're not going to be achieving any sort of mitigation potential. If you're growing a resource just to make biochar, so for okay, so
0: waste, I'm sorry. I said, no, I was just going to ask you if you could give an example of a waste stream that you're talking about.
1: Yeah. So for waste, it can be all sorts of things, and I've um, I've read through a lot of literature to to get a handle on what's going on, and people use very diverse waste streams, just depending on where they're located, and so it can be wood waste. At Fraser Common Farm, we were using. They have a wood lot on their site, and so we were using windfalls primarily to make the biochar. But people have experimented. You can use manure. So we could use maybe poultry manure in the Fraser Valley, which we have an excess of. Um, You can use, I've read about in the tropics, people have used nut shells. They get mass amounts of shells left over from um, harvesting nuts, which don't make good compost, although you could do other things with them, but you can make a good biochar out of it. Um, You could use crop residues. So it it can be manure. It can be green waste. It can be wood waste. And just depending where you are and what large source of Biomass waste you have, you could um, try to redirect that for the purpose of making biochar.
0: And then I guess if if I think of it on like you know within the context of one farm, if you you know inevitably you have certain organic waste that is really fibrous and and you know um, uh, prunings are a good example that sort of thing that 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 take a long time to compost in a normal way. I guess those would be good candidates. Uh, You know, that's where that's where the biochar production could play a role, just because you can uh, break those down for the gardens or the the soil's benefit in in a different way than than composting. That is perhaps a little more um, appropriate for those really fibrous materials.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, prunings would be a good idea if you have a a vineyard or an orchard. Um, Woody biomass is yeah a great a great um, source to make biochar with. You can also use, I mean, there's ideas of capturing, because lots of some, I mean, lots of farmers don't have mass amounts of um, excess biomass on site. And there are other, there's, if you're doing it on a larger scale or if a a sort of a region is thinking about doing it, you could capture other waste streams from, like, pruning of trees in a city, in an urban area, or, like, like, the green waste that's picked up in, Vancouver or other districts, for instance, like there's ideas about how different waste streams could be, could be redirected and then produced off-site. So there's both, could be, depends on the scale that you're talking about, whether on-farm or off-farm and what waste stream you could be using.
0: And I guess when you're when you're when you're doing this process it sounds like it, it you you're able to I guess let's call it process this this organic matter much more quickly uh, than than like traditional composting processes especially with fibrous material is that right
1: yeah because the I mean the paralysis process it I mean it doesn't take very long you could do it you know it takes about depending on what type of reactor you have it takes like a small one on a farm, it takes about a day to run a batch just because it takes a while well, to heat up, and then you have the cooling down process. So, uh, and then it's ready to go in your soil as soon as it's cooled, basically. So I guess you're right that it you know, wouldn't take us if you're trying to make, versus making compost, it is a quicker process.
0: Okay, and before we get on to that process, could I just have one more question about, about uh, its, its, its benefits. Can you talk more specifically about what it can do or what you understand it can do um, for your soil? Definitely. So
1: it's thought that biochar is going to increase crop yield, and there's three main benefits to soil processes through which it might be able to increase yield. Um, and these are improved nutrient retention and nutrient availability, improved water retention and water availability, and improve soil microbial activity. And maybe I'll just explain each of those a little bit. So to understand the benefits, I need to talk a little bit about the structure of biochar. Um, so if you imagine charcoal, it's, a really, it's really lightweight because it's so porous. And so one of the big benefits from biochar is that it's a, it's a very porous substance, and something that has high porosity has a high surface area. And a high surface area in a soil is beneficial to um, chemical reactions that occur and that allow for nutrient availability and nutrient retention. And so if you um, think about soil texture, soil soils with clay textures with the small particles have high surface area and they tend to retain water and nutrients better than a sandy soil, which has a coarse texture and not as much porosity as the, the clay soils. So biochar would have even greater porosity and greater surface area than a clay textured soil. And so by adding biochar and increasing the the surface area and porosity within our soils, it has the, the potential to increase nutrient retention and availability and increase water retention in soil. And as for the soil microorganisms, it's thought that because there's all this pore space that it increases the potential habitat for for microorganisms and um I've seen some cool photographs um, of like the uh mycorrhizal fungi that they sort of colonize and inhabit all the small pores within the biochar and soil microbes colonize inside the pores as well and so by having this this flourishing of of microbes in your soil again you get increased microbial activity which contributes to to lots of beneficial processes including nutrient availability in your soils.
0: So by way of, of analogy I guess like the next time that my girlfriend points out that I've got a bunch of food stuck in my beard and kind of gives me a hard time I can just explain <laughs> that it's all about surface area and that she just doesn't understand what it's like uh, <laughs> because there's just so much so many more sites of attraction between me and, and uh, you know the, the cottage the, the bowl of cottage cheese and fruit that i just ate that's true
1: um, yeah
0: <laughs> yeah all right so now are there any I, it's it's kind of funny because just by accident last night i was reading uh i was kind of browsing farmy type articles online and i i caught one about biochar that it was it was a really brief little blurb about some some research that's going to be done to uh explore whether there are many negative consequences uh to adding biochar to the soil and i'll just quickly ask you if you're aware of any are is there any are there any um Potential pitfalls of of all of us. I mean, our society trying this out on a large scale.
1: Yeah, I think there's lots of pitfalls, and this is again a great question. Biochar has a lot of the hype in the media. I'd say it's it's portrayed in a fairly positive light, but there's definitely some negative impacts. And and in terms of soil, I think. Um, I just mentioned the benefits, and those are, those are potential benefits. I mean, it depends on so many factors, such as your initial soil texture, your initial soil health, the amount of organic matter you already had in there, the pH of your soil, your climate, where you're located. So it's definitely not a, if you use biochar, you're going to have increased yield. It's, it's very dependent on a lot of variables. In terms of actual negative impacts, some that, one of them is the change in pH could be a problem, if biochars are rather alkaline um, so have a, a high pH and there is so it, it could be so like lime has an alkaline pH um, if you add too much of it it might it might and you already have an alkaline soil or neutral soil it could change pH um, to a, a higher level than you would like for, for nutrients for crop um, crops ideally want neutral pH other potential, negative impacts for soil is, I mean, it's very high in carbon, so some, some people have suggested that because it'll have a very high C to N ratio, that the some of your nutrients, like nitrogen, might get tied up, so compost tend to have, like a poultry manure has a very low C to N ratio, a, a green residue compost would have a sort of moderate C to N ratio and a woody would have a very high, biochar has an extremely high C to N ratio, so that is a, is a potential concern although that's been discredited by, by some people because the, because the carbon is so recalcitrant and resistant to decay that it just doesn't end up tying up nutrients is what people argue. And another possible pitfall that people have raised, and this is not particularly relevant to organic farmers, but if you're using pesticides or herbicides, because biochar has such a, a great ability to absorb and retain substances, it, would, it has the potential to absorb and retain toxic substances. So if you are using a pesticide, say, then one, it could reduce the effectiveness by absorption, and also you could have it retained in your soil, which would be um, even worse than if you were just using pesticides in the first place. And then there's, the, the, and there's another potential that biochar itself could contain toxic substances, and that depends entirely or mostly on what you're making it out of. Um, so if you're making it from organic residues on your farm, it is very unlikely that it would contain toxic substances, um, although there's been some concern raised over in, in, your incomplete combustion or, or could potentially result in um, some toxic substances such as polyaromatic hydrocarbons, um, PAHs. However, there's not. I've, I haven't read a lot of research on, on whether that is a concern or not? Most of the, the few sources I have found said that any levels are so low that it's not a concern. Um, however, there isn't a lot of research on it yet, so so I wouldn't write it off as not being a concern at all.
0: And, and if I remember correctly, Dennis, there, you talked in, at the conference about a kind of a historical precedent for the use of biochar. This has been done before by other, you know, in history by other cultures or, or um, by other, yeah, by other cultural groups. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, actually, that's a that's a it's really interesting. I started reading about the history of it, and I mean, I I never thought about it too much. But I mean, maybe other people have, like, if you run into charcoal in your soils, which is quite possible, um, you've thought more about it. But so the the history of it is that people found in the Amazon that there these soils that they've been termed black earth now um, or terra preta. And they found them in the Amazon of Brazil. And they they were there were soils that were they're very close to each other in location, but this in one area was way more fertile than the soils, the neighboring soils. And they realized that these highly fertile soils contained a lot of charcoal. So people started to do research on this and the charcoal is from different anthropogenic sources such as flash and burn agriculture or like making pottery, and so different. There's the there's sort of some anthropological studies on what was contained in the soil, and they realized it's probably from pre-Columbian indigenous societies that there's this accumulation of charcoal has happened over an extremely long period of time, and that's produced these really fertile soils in um, different locations in the Amazon. And so this was sort of an impetus for soil scientists to be like, oh, well, this. You know, maybe we should look into this, and it kind of spurred this this renewed interest in research in charcoal in North America. Um, and in my reading, I've seen in other in other places as well that the idea of using charcoal in soil isn't something new. In other cultures, has done it both intentionally and unintentionally over the course of history. So the idea so putting charcoal in soil is definitely not not um, an entirely new concept. I'd say biochar is just a a renewed old concept.
0: Ah, okay, cool. So so what about, um, you did some trials out at Fraser, Fraser Commons Farm. Mm-hmm. What, what? Can you talk briefly about what you observed?
1: Yeah. So um, so I worked with Dave McCandless at Fraser Commons Farm, and Dave, uh, he built a kiln on-site. It's made out of a 55-gallon steel drum, so it's a fairly small kiln. And so he was making the, the biochar on-site out of alder windfalls, And we set up a field trial where we had um, some different treatments, and the treatments that we decided on were, we added the biochar just by itself, we added biochar with compost, um, compost by itself, and biochar with compost tea, and then we had a control plot that had nothing added, and we planted beets in in our plots. And, you know, just say briefly, the the reason we chose these different treatments is that there's been suggestions that adding biochar with um, a compost or a compost tea um, or a source of microbial activity or something sort of to what they call activating it. So by having the compost or the compost tea, it's thought that it might be, the benefits will be greater or more immediate than just having the biochar alone um, added to the soil. So we planted beets in there, and we let the beets grow from June until sort of late September, so um, sort of full season. And we, then we just har- harvested and weighed them. And also we had thinned the beets so that we had equal beets per, per treatment area. And then we, we just weighed them to, to check the yield, um, and we found that the biochar, resulted in increased yield over the control so not having any biochar or compost um, but the biochar and compost or the biochar and compost tea didn't produce a greater yield than just the biochar so that was that was unexpected and then we also found that the compost alone had the greatest yield of all of them so, so the biochar did increase yield over the control but the biochar and compost didn't end up being any better than just having compost in the in the trial that we did. So it's not our trial wasn't. I mean, it wasn't very scientifically rigorous. Um, it was sort of small plots, but so that's what what we observed from the, the trial at Fraser Common. And we definitely want to do some more research to see if we do it on a larger scale what happens.
0: Larger scale, and I would assume too, uh, doing it over longer time. Time, per- time frame, like over multiple years, would be really helpful to to see the effects of biochar over time.
1: Yeah, that was something I know, and they really want to keep the trials for more than one year. But it's um, because we had done sort of small plots within one bed. It was just a, a, a management hassle for the the farm, and they ended up just. It's I mean, it's still in the the bed that it was in, but we don't have the separate plots anymore. Um, but we have. Well, uh, still, it's
0: a it's a it's a great start. It's a great. I yeah. mean, it's it's really interesting that, that you two did this, and it. Um, yeah, it's 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 a good start to to playing around with uh, figuring out how the the, the relative benefits of
1: mm-hmm. biochar. Mm-hmm. We actually did some. We did some little potting mix trials. were pretty that were fun. We thought maybe it'd be cool if we could use biochar as a in our potting mixes to reduce the amount of off farm um, inputs that like, that we have to buy. So to reduce like. Buying vermiculite Pete. or something, yeah, or peat. Um, yeah. So, so we designed these mixes with biochar, but we had used a we had used a relatively a high rate, like we tried like 50% biochar and and then a mix of compost and worm castings. But the seedlings did not like 50% biochar. So it was a very clear <laughs> that was that was, it was good to see that it was like they just didn't germinate. And I think it has I think it might be the alkalinity. We never fully. I mean, we can't figure out exactly what it was, but um, the alkalinity would be a good guess, because I know seedlings don't germinate in very alkaline soils. But maybe some of the ones we had a lesser rate, like just a quarter biochar had okay um, germination. So, And we didn't get too much further with that, but I thought it would be a a cool idea to experiment with um, trying to replace
0: um, potting mix inputs that we buy off-farm. That sounds really cool too. It's too bad you couldn't, didn't have more time to to play around with that. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's, let's close out this, uh, this conversation by talking about uh, how to produce this stuff. And let's talk about it on a, kind of on a, I mean, this is a podcast for, for generally focused on small scale farming and gardening. So let's talk about it on a small scale farm type scale. Uh, Now, one of my, one of the uh, farming apprenticeships I did a few years ago was on a farm, on Southern Vancouver Island. So very coastal climate. And it, it seems like maybe the ideal hypothetical farm to to produce uh, biochar on in that the it's it's coastal climate. So the soils are fairly acidic from all the rain. Mm-hmm. And on this particular farm, there was a small scale sawmill. So there was a ton of uh, wood scraps and sawdust and the kind of stuff you were talking about before can be used to produce biochar. So yeah. I, j- I just want to ask you, Dennis, if that Farm or any other farmer or gardener wants to try this. What's the most practical way that they can they can try this out? How would they go about trying to produce some biochar?
1: That's a great question. So, the the kiln that Dave
0: built at Fraser
1: Common Farm, I think, is a pretty good design. And what it is is it's a fifty five gallon steel drum. So you can get those from from different sources, um, and for for no cost or cheap and then the, so the steel drum is where you load in your your organic waste that you're using. And you have to have, when you burn, so the, the flame will be under the drums. So you're not directly burning your organic waste. So you would set the drum up um, parallel to the, the ground so so that the, long, the length is, is parallel to the ground. And then you would set a little fire underneath the drum. And when you're burning your organic waste, gases are released, and so you need to create a way for the gases to rele- be released from the 55-gallon drum. And so what you can do is you weld a, a pipe, so make a make a small hole, weld a pipe on that comes down, um, comes out of the drum, and then under the drum. And then the gases will go into that pipe, and then if you have to perforate the bottom of the pipe, and the gases can come out. And then the gases are actually flammable, so the gases will burn once they start coming out and then they fuel the process. And so in this way you're you have to start a fire initially, but once the the it gets heated and the gases are coming out, you don't need to add to the fire. So it's sort of a a self um maintained process. And then it just goes until there's no more gases released and it cools itself down eventually, usually overnight. And that's so that's how Dave does it. Um, and there's, I have um, pictures of it that are available online, and there's also lots of um, sources online of how to build these 55-gallon drum-type kilns. And I guess my and there's lots of different ways out there for farmers to build them, and I think there's there's just like a ton of information on the internet now. And so maybe just some recommendations if you are going to do it. There's a lot of health precautions that I recommend that you take because you're working with, you know, you're working with something that's at a very high temperature and there's gases coming out. And a, if the gases don't come out, you'll have a high pressure and you'll have an explosion. And the gases themselves are things like carbon monoxide and hydrogen gas. So a, they're really flammable and they're also um, health hazards for humans to inhale. So you need to be make sure you design it very cautiously
0: not in your bedroom don't not do in it in your, your bedroom.
1: In... yeah okay don't do it in the garage don't do it indoors don't do it in your greenhouse do it in an open don't do it
0: in like a don't do it in like a 1970 Volkswagen bus. <laughs> or...
1: no no okay. don't don't do it in your tank of fuel um, so yeah so so be very be very thoughtful about the potential explosion and gas hazards that come along with building these kilns. Um, definitely do some serious reading and, and thought about the design before you follow. Before you just build something that's out there on the Internet. Um, and another, it, I think it's ideal to be having the gases fuel the, the process. So there's designs out there where people, like, I mean, you can use, like, old techniques where you build a, dig a pit and fill it up, set a fire in there, cover it all up, and it... Certainly produces charcoal, and people do that around the world. But I mean, if you don't want to be producing greenhouse gases, then that's not an ideal way to go about it. And so, the, these ones where you burn off the gases, I mean, you do produce some greenhouse gases, but inevitably you're producing less by by using this process. I think
0: you also get. So a I guess product. I guess the the key the key concepts it sounds like are, are that ideally you have a kiln type thing because you want to you want to have the, the the burning taking place in a kind of enclosed space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh you ideally you want to pipe the gas being produced back to the original source of heat so that it can be the main fuel for the for the burning process. Yeah. And you need a really high temperature to produce higher quality biochar.
1: Yes. And if the, if you're if those gases are being burned it's going to be at a high temperature. Your problem will be potentially being too high, if anything, because those gases burn quite at a high, high temperature. So getting it up to temperature isn't such a problem if if you're burning the gases.
0: Um, Okay. And, and I assume that you, uh, you can provide me with some links to kind of uh, sites that, that, that Illustrate what you're talking about, and I can I can put those up on the website along with this podcast episode. Yeah,
1: definitely. Um, and another thing I wanted to say is that so this design that we've done is quite a simple one, and there there are more complicated designs out there. And I think getting trying to build some of those more complicated designs would be would be great um, if you have the, the the time and the engineering skills to do so. Uh, I think there's some opportunity for capturing heat in different ways. Um, or capturing the gases to use in different ways, because on on larger scales or even medium scales, people have designed systems where it's also a source of of energy, and then there is a lot of energy in there. And if you capture it, I think that would be awesome. And so even on a small scale, I've seen some out there. They're they're more complicated than one we did, but I think they're feasible for someone who's got um... got some engineering and and building skills to to make on a small farm. And you could do something like either heat water for a greenhouse or basically somehow capture energy alongside making the biochar just to
0: even increase the efficiency. And how long does one burn take? Are we talking about a few hours or a day or or how long to produce one batch of biochar?
1: In the kiln that I described that we have, the 55-gallon drum, it it takes a day. I mean, it burns for probably four or five hours. So it takes. There's like a little curtain. You gotta once you set the fire. It takes a little bit for it to get going, and then it probably burns at full temperature for maybe four hours or something, and then it cools off, and then um, we let it fully cool till the following morning, um, just to be safe because you don't want to take that lid off when there's when there's still any pressure or heat in there. So it's just if you start a morning start a fire and, and then start the kiln going first thing in the morning, then. The next morning, you go open it, and it'll be safe and cool, and you can take it all out and start working with it. Actually, one other thing I wanted to say is that the, the charcoal is—it's um, dry and dusty, and it's also a hazard to be inhaling or to be releasing to the to the air. So you need to come up with creative ways to 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 not um, to not inhale the dust or have it released into the environment when you're working with it. Um, so you can wear a mask when you're working with it. I'd recommend that. And you can also try to keep it damp would be the, like, moisten it either with by mixing it. You can just add some water or mixing it with your compost or mixing it with a compost tea or something. But if you work with it when it's damp, um, you can avoid the dust the factor.
0: And so it sounds like you definitely should not use biochar as a substitute for rice to throw at your best friend's wedding when they come out of the church. <laughs> No. <laughs> okay. Unless unless all the guests are wearing gas masks or some sort of yeah. uh, breathing apparatus. Yes. Okay. And, and it may be okay. Yeah. <laughs> which, which might happen in like like a post-apocalyptic wedding or something. They might have to be wearing masks anyway. Yeah. So, okay. Th- good to confirm that. Listen, uh, that was really interesting. I'm I i, I I'm really glad to have had you on the podcast, Dennis, because I was fascinated when I caught this seminar at the last year's conference, mm-hmm. and I think uh, hopefully some of the listener, our, of our listeners will find it interesting too. So thanks very much for, for, for coming on today to talk about it.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Okay, that's it for this episode. Check out the posts of this episode at theruminant.ca if you want to look at some of the links that Dennis has provided about biochar or if you're interested in any other delightful nuggets of information that are of general interest to farmers and gardeners. Once again, thanks for listening, folks, and I will talk to you next time.